everybody and welcome to Coach's Corner. I love today's conversation because I talk with an expert on happiness. Dr. Robert Waldinger is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and he's the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Mass General Hospital and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. He is just a smart cookie and is a professor, which is still a working psychiatrist. He's also a Zen master and he teaches meditation. You can find his meditations on the Insight Timer app. And he's the fourth director of an 80-something year study on happiness, which he's going to talk about more in our interview. And I wanted to have him on because a lot of people say they want to be happy, but what does happiness mean? And happiness isn't a sustainable state. We can't be happy all the time. So when we say we want to be happy, what are we really looking for? We talk about so many fascinating things on this episode. We talk about mental health. We dig into myths about happiness. We talk about how your childhood impacts your happiness, how to have happiness in relationships, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. Robert, who goes by Bob. And before we dive in, I want to thank my sponsor, which is Organifi, my favorite place to get all kinds of yummy, nutritious things. Today, I want to talk to you about their Organifi Gold. This is an alternative to melatonin. Maybe some of you take melatonin to relax, to go to sleep, which is great. But how about something that's super delicious? Organifi Gold is this awesome turmeric powder mixed with all kinds of other yummy stuff, different mushrooms and adaptogens and all kinds of yummy stuff that you can put in your almond milk, your coconut milk, your regular milk, whatever, heat it up and just savor it. It's so, so yummy and it really can help you with sleep struggles. It's a great melatonin alternative. Melatonin has a half-life. So for some of us, it can leave us feeling a little groggy the next day. So Instead, if you're looking for something to just relax you, help you with sleep, help a little inflammation, and that just tastes really, really good, go to Organifi.com slash over it, get your turmeric gold. Well, they don't call it turmeric gold. They call it just gold. (laughs) I call it turmeric gold because it has so much yummy turmeric in it. And add it to your cart and you get 20% off as my listener using the promo code over it. All right. And now on to my conversation with Dr. Robert Waldinger. Welcome to the show. It's rare that I have a doctor and a professor on the show, so and an author. So I'm happy to have you here. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. My audience, most of my audience knows this about me, but you may not know this about me. And so I'll share it now because it leads me into a question. So when I was around 11 years old, I was diagnosed with depression. I was put on antidepressants and I started seeing a psychiatrist around then and soft psychiatrists and psychotherapists until... My 20s where I went more into life coaching and spiritual psychology and then ended up getting off antidepressants in my 30s, right at 30. It took me two years to get off them because I was on them a good two decades of my life. And that journey has given me, you know, one such empathy for, for mental health and for people that struggle with any kind of mental health issues or challenges. And honestly, I think everybody does to some degree. It just may not be DSM-4 diagnosable, but it, it really inspired me to do work in this world. And it's so um, one of the many reasons why I do what I do. And so you're, you're a doctor, you're a psychiatrist, and you're a professor of psychiatry. And I'm, I'm curious, what was your journey or passion for getting into this world of mental health? Because you go to medical school, you could be any kind of doctor and you chose psychiatry. Why was that your passion? 
Well, and first of all, I just want to say that I the work you're doing is so important because we need people talking about mental health, uh, people like you who've, who've had real experience. And, you know, we just need more of that uh, mm-hmm. because there's so much good help available. Um, but anyway, the, to your question of what got me into it, um, I was always fascinated by uh, the mind, about by what makes us tick, by the all the ways that people are human and the different experiences we have. And, and what I found in medical school was that psychiatry was the most fascinating thing for me, that I didn't care as much about physical illness unless, unless somebody I knew had that illness, but that I really was fascinated by the human mind and mm-hmm. all the ways that people deal with the struggles of being alive. Yeah. It is quite a journey, this human experience, I have to say. And for you, have you ever had any of your own struggles that have influenced your passion for this? Yes, I have. Um, I got really down, not clinically depressed, but pretty down. Actually, my first year of medical school, because I didn't like it. (laughs) And and I thought I was having a crisis because I had wanted to go to med school. And then I got to med school and it was like, I don't like all this memorizing. And it took a while to work my way out of that. And mm-hmm. I had the help of a good professor who mm-hmm. kind of took me under her wing and was a good advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, when my kids were young, I struggled with a milder form of depression and uh, got help both with really good psychotherapy um, and some good kind of professional coaching. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a mentor took me aside and said, look, how about turning toward these things that you really enjoy? Yeah. And that's what made me move actually toward research. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And so are you, are you still seeing patients clinically or are you teaching and just doing research? Yeah. Yeah. Every day I have busy man. (laughs) I I see two patients later this afternoon. Mm, Amazing. And what what I, thank you for sharing that. I always appreciate it when someone shares from their personal experience. And I think it's important to note that you don't have to be diagnosed with depression or anxiety or any mental health thing to seek help. Um, And sometimes it is a season. And it's not necessarily medication we need, but it is some kind of outside support. I really don't feel, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, that when we're in a depressed place or a down place or we're going through a trauma, that we can navigate it without help. Um, We live in an interdependent world for a reason. And I just think during those times, having some kind of professional help is is necessary. What, what do Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Now, sometimes people with milder forms of unhappiness or crisis can get the kind of help they need from family, from a good friend. But more often than not, getting a trusted, trained person to help you could be with medication, could be with psychotherapy, could be both. that that's hugely impactful. It goes a long way. And often it can prevent sinking more deeply into a troubled state. So I heartily recommend that people, you know, get up the courage because it takes courage mm-hmm. to, to seek help. 
I agree. Uh, I, I agree. I think that almost there's this pressure. Well, first of all, there's a stigma of any mental health thing. Then there's the pressure to to have it all together. And, you know, I felt it many times in my life, but most recently I just, I just had a baby in March and well, congratulations. thank you. And there was definitely this pressure to like be in the baby bliss and uh, be back to life. And isn't it so amazing? And, and uh, there were times when it wasn't amazing. There were times when no. I was really lonely and I was really sad and I was really anxious and I was scared and I was grieving and you feel guilty admitting those things because it's supposed to be a happy time. And we're going to talk about happiness, but it's supposed to be quote unquote happy. And at times it wasn't. And that's why I think it's so important that we speak about these things and we seek out support because when we try to navigate those things on our own and just pretend we're fine when we're not, like you said, it can just drive us deeper, deeper, deeper into the depression, the funk, the season, whatever it is we're in. And then once we're so deep in it, I feel like it's even harder to ask for help because it seems like the deeper we sink, the farther we have to reach, which is why I'm such an advocate of of coaches and psychiatrists and counselors and any kind of help. And there's, like you said, there's things we can do with friends or courses or books or even podcasts, but that one-on-one support, I'm sure both as a patient and a clinician, you found there's just nothing like it. There's just nothing like it when you have that one-on-one person really in your corner taking care of you. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my teachers once told me this, and I think it really fits here. He said, never worry alone. So if you find yourself thinking, I'm, you know, I'm feeling lousy or the world is terrible or nobody wants me or any of those dark thoughts, or Lord knows if you've just had a baby and you're suffering from that very normal Uh, emotional fluctuation that happens when people have babies. I mean, that's the time not to worry alone, but to reach out and say, hey, uh, I'd like to talk to someone. I I couldn't agree more. I have two friends that I can bring my worry bucket to. And it's such a relief when I can unload that because someone saying to me, don't worry, is like someone saying to me, don't breathe. It's completely impossible for me. Exactly. You can't, you can't just not worry. You can't uh, not worry. Especially the way I'm wired. It's just, it's just my nickname as a kid was worry wart. So, yeah. <sighs> so, but that never worry alone. I love that. I love that. That's so good. Well, I want to, I want to dig into some of your research because I love research. I think, you know, sometime in my career, I want to go back and be a professor and just research things because it just brings back my, my school nerd days. And I, I love that world <laughs> of research. So I'm, I'm curious uh, to know in your research, um, well, I don't know if this is your research or if this is just research you're familiar with, but there was a Harvard study of adult development that found the essential ingredient for a good life. And I'd love to know what that is. Yes. So I'm the fourth director of that study and it's been going for 85 years, studied the same people, the 724 families, multiple generations over 85 years. And so your question is, well, what is the the big secret that we found? And actually, we found two things that were the key to happiness. One is not a secret. It's that taking care of your health really, really matters. Uh, but the thing that was the surprise for us when we looked at who stayed happy and healthy as they went through their adult life, that 
one of the most powerful predictors of staying happy and healthy was having good, warm connections with other people. Um, and that was a surprise. So we, we thought, well, it stands to reason that if you have good relationships, you'll be happier. But how could good relationships predict that you'd be less likely to get coronary artery disease or uh, arthritis or type 2 diabetes? How could that possibly be that relationships change our physiology, change our bodies? But they do. And we've been studying that now. And many other research groups have found the same thing, that there's this really powerful effect. Social connection keeps us not just happier, but keeps our bodies healthier and keeps our brains sharper. Mm. I, that doesn't surprise me at all. The health thing, absolutely. But the connection thing, it, it doesn't surprise me. It seems so fundamental to the human experience. And we focus so much on our career and how much money we're going to make. I wish they taught us classes in in school and, and in college about how to make really good friends, how to be a good friend, how to be vulnerable, how to resolve conflict yeah. in relationships. You can have long lasting relationships because it's so the key to feeling less alone, to yeah. feeling not crazy some of the time, because when you have people that know you and you're really connected to, they can reflect back to you things that can really put things in perspective. So I, and what a study, 85 years. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty cool study. So over the years, it gets passed on to different directors. Is that how it works? Yeah, um, oh, number wow. four. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And in this podcast, I don't know if you know, but what we do is I interview people on Saturdays and on Wednesdays, I air an unscripted, unedited live coaching session with someone that I've never met. Mm. And so it's a mix of coaching and spiritual psychology and people call in with a question or an issue. And 99.9% .9 of the time, there's a tie back to childhood. There's some kind of root cause mm -hmm. for the pattern or behavior or issue that's coming up. So I'd love to know from your perspective and experience, what are the factors in early childhood that really, really shape our mental health in, in mid and late life, or even, you know, in our twenties? Yes. Well, we studied this. We actually found connections between what happens to kids, you know, when they're young and 60 years later, how good their marriages are, how good their partnerships are. So, and finding these connections are like rare because nobody has a study that lasts this long. Those connections are really important. So what we find is that people who have a secure connection with at least one person in childhood are the people who come to expect that that's possible when they get older that they could have a secure connection with a partner or with friends. So, and, and what do I mean by secure connection? Well, it starts with the sense that the other person will be there when you need them. The sense that you are lovable and the other person cares about you. So actually there's a developmental psychologist, Michael Rutter, who once said that when he looks at all the research, the single most important factor in childhood that predicts a good life is that each child needs one adult who's just crazy about them. And that's what we Aww. find that if, if you know, yeah. we had, that if you have at least one adult who's, who adores you and is consistent 
right, is there for you and is reliable and predictable, that that means a whole lot. And that often it's the unpredictability. Yes, there's certainly a, lots of abuse and, and all kinds of active problems, but it's also the unreliability of caregivers that can really set a child up for believing that the world is not safe and can't be counted on. Mm, mm. That's, I mean, I think we all know that, but that's so crucial for us all to really take in both as parents and also as adults who may be blaming and shaming ourselves for not having it more together or not being more on top of it or having the same kind of issues. It doesn't take much to really throw us off is what I'm hearing you're saying. And it also doesn't take much to really set us up because having an adult we can count on, man, that's something every child should get. I mean, it just brings emotion to my, to me to, to think that, Not many children get that, you know? Well, you know, the other thing we find is that if you haven't gotten that as a child, it doesn't mean you're out of luck. It doesn't mean you're doomed to an unhappy life at all. That many of the people in our study and, and in this new book of ours, we tell stories, we weave in the stories of our real participants in the study. And Many of them who had difficult childhoods found corrective experiences, healing experiences by choosing a partner who was consistent and reliable and loving, by finding friends who were consistent and reliable and loving, that that can go a long way to, to healing and correcting these, expe- these low expectations of the world. One of the things I say on the show a lot is it's never too late to have a great childhood. And I truly believe that. I truly believe both through my experience and just through my professional training that we have this inner child that always lives within us. And it's always wanting to get needs met. And we can repeat patterns. If we had alcoholic father, we can go be with an alcoholic partner and keep repeating the same trauma and patterns. Or we can really make choices of like choosing differently and giving ourselves the the childhood, the experience, the relation that we we didn't have growing up. And we have to grieve. I think we all have to grieve the childhood we wish we had but didn't. But give ourselves that as adults by making those healthier choices. That's why it's so important. I was we had an event last night, a breathwork event, and a woman came and talked to me afterwards about her pattern of picking narcissistic partners. And she's the question essentially was, How do I stop doing this? And she's with someone else that's gaslighting her. And she said, I see, I've seen the red flags, and but I, I just don't know how much it's just my issues versus, you know, and I said, stop, you know, you know, mm. and if you want it to be different, you have to make different choices and not ignore those red flags and trust yourself. Yes. So for people listening who are finding themselves in experiences that were similar to childhood in that not great relationship, in a toxic work environment, in whatever patterns from childhood that they had to endure that weren't great. They're finding themselves kind of in that loop again, and they feel really stuck. What advice would you have for them? Well, the first thing is to see whether the relationship you're in could get unstuck. So 
let's say you have a lot invested in that relationship. Let's say you have children together or some other way that your lives are really intertwined so that stepping away would be at a big cost. Um, that the first thing is to see what well, could could it be different? And that might take a couple's therapist. That might take you asking this person, can this be different? Um, I don't want to be gaslighted. I don't want to be told that I'm inferior, whatever the story is, right? And if if someone is willing to meet you and say, okay, I'm going to try to do it differently, and there's a, there's a lot on the line, it might be possible to work things out. But otherwise, it's really useful to step away and to see how you can notice when you're starting to choose the wrong person again, right? The narcissistic partner or whoever it might be. And we do tend to do that. We do tend to repeat the past because it feels familiar. And, mm-hmm. you know, actually I had to learn this. So when I was uh, a young guy, I was dating people and I realized that, you know, the relationships weren't working out. And the first thing that I learned in the psychotherapy that I had as a 20 something was that I was choosing all the wrong people. I was choosing people who were really demanding and unhappy with me and I couldn't do anything right. And, and I noticed that it, that the people who, who thought I was just fine as I was and weren't demanding, those are the people I didn't look at twice. And when I began to realize that, I started dating different people and found a partner who I've been with now for almost 37 years. And boy, is it different. And oh, am I thankful that I that I saw this pattern with help and that I was able to look elsewhere for the kind of people I wanted to be with. Yeah. And so often we repeat our relationship with our parents, you know, whatever. We're always seeking the love of the parent that we wish we had the love from. And absolutely. Yeah. And that's what's so great about awareness. And it's it's the application of the awareness is where I feel like a lot of people might get stuck. And we have yeah. to have to have to. We don't well, I shouldn't say we have to, but I don't know how else to say it. We, yeah, yeah. We, we well, I'm gonna say have to because I can't think of another way to say it. Put the awareness into application and when we see ourselves about to walk into the same hole, walk around it as appealing as that hole could look because it's so familiar. We, we've got to walk around it. Um, exactly. And, and also, you know, sometimes it can, a trusted friend can help us. Like you could ask your friend, am I doing this again? Or is this, you know, cause sometimes other people can see things more clearly than we can when, when we're in the midst of it. Yeah. So someone else can really help. Again, never worry alone. <laughs> I, I love that. I'm gonna have that on my mirror. What um what factors because we talked about, you know, what factors really help us with ingredient for good life. We talked about what really impacts in our childhood. I'm curious about lifespan. What factors are most strongly associated with living longer? Well, again, taking care of your health is strongly associated, so it really makes a difference you know, to do all those good health behaviors. It's not just something your grandmother made up and lectured you about. Um, But that then in addition, 
that taking care of our relationships, you know, with friends, with family, you know, even casual relationships, like the person who, you know, checks you out in the cashier's line at the grocery store, all these relationships give us little hits of well-being that sustain our health mm. as well as our happiness. So it's really useful. And the reason why it's important to name is think of all the pressures we have not to pay attention to our relationships. I mean, we have busy lives. We're, we're raising kids. We're working busy jobs. We might have family members who need our care, you know, uh, aging relatives, whatever. But there are just so many pulls on our time. And so many of us say, oh, you know, my, my friendships will take care of themselves or I'll have time later. And, you know, when, when our folks, our original first generation folks in our study got into their 80s, we asked them to look back on their lives at what they regretted the most and what they were proudest of. And to a person almost, hundreds of people said that they were most regretted not spending enough time with the people they cared about. Mm. Um, and another thing that they regretted, actually women more than men, many of them said, I wish I hadn't spent so much time worrying about what other people thought. Yeah. That's key, everybody, especially those of you that are thinking about what other people are thinking. It doesn't matter. And has anyone ever said, I wish I would have spent more time working? No, nobody in our study, yeah. you know, that, that old adage, nobody on their deathbed ever wished they'd spent more time at the office. It's a, it's a cliche for a reason because <laughs> that's true. Yep. Yep. And what else surprised you that came out of the study where you were really like, huh, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, one of the things that surprised me was that the differences between men and women were not as great as we expected them to be, particularly around relationships that, that, that I had always understood from research and from popular culture that women prize relationships a lot more than men. But what we found, and many other studies have found this too, was that relationships are really important to men too. They may do them differently and maybe may not be quite as good at relationships as women are at keeping up their connections, but they're really important to men as well. Hmm. Um, what else surprised me? Um, oh, definitely one important thing is that, so we had some Harvard undergraduates from the 1940s in our study, very privileged, and some inner city Boston kids from very poor disadvantaged families. The inner city kids, as they grew up, were just as happy as the Harvard guys. So privilege does not make you happy. Wealth does not make you happy. And mm. that's really important. Mm -hmm. We spend so much time chasing the things that really aren't the key to happiness. Why do you think we're so out of balance? Like what happened to our priorities in life? Because most people spend the most time working working on work, right. working on making money, working on how they look. And the people they love the most, they probably see the less. I, I, I would bet that a lot of people listening see people you work with more than a parent you love or a child you love or your spouse in terms of hours a day. You can't 
count hours you're sleeping at night as quality time with family members. But think about it. Like, where do you think we got so off? And have you noticed, like, I know you're the fourth director, but this is an 80-something year study. As technology has come online, social media has come online, have there been significant shifts that you think have been caused by just the more chaotic way we're living now? Yes, yes. So in the book, we actually go take people through an exercise where we ask people to to estimate the amount of time they have left to spend with someone they care about based on how 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 much time they see them on average and you would be amazed it's shocking how little time we spend with each other as you were saying and how little time we have left to spend if we don't change our habits and we think that it's gotten worse there've been good studies that show that we stopped spending as much time with other people starting in the 1950s in the United States that when television came into every living room, people stopped going out. They they stopped inviting people over as much. They stopped joining clubs, going to houses of worship. They stopped doing all that stuff at the same rates. And they sat at home and watched TV. Uh, And then they did a similar study in the early 2000s and found that all these things had gotten much worse, almost certainly because of the advent of smartphones and tablets and computers, because we are all on our screens, often more than one screen at once, most of the day. Mm -hmm. And so what we realize is that these screens, as much as they are useful and we love them, they are designed to capture our attention and hold it. And the problem with that is that we stop pay, paying attention to each other. Mm. <sighs> I was talking to my mom. We were on a walk. And I said, God, mom, I wish you could just go back to the 80s. <laughs> and and yeah. now I want to go back even further than that. Because my childhood was so much simpler. People had to call on the landline. There yeah. wasn't There wasn't so much. I mean, if you wanted to watch TV, you had to show up at that time or record it. Um, we didn't have phones. I played outside until it got dark. It, it just it just was, I think, better. I think better. And are you concerned about where happiness is going versus where it maybe was, say, 40 years ago? Yeah, yeah. For just the reason you're saying that, you know, our, our lives are more and more away from each other and online and on screens. And so what's happening now is that the path of least resistance, both for kids and for us as grownups, the path of least resistance is towards spending all of our time online and not in person with each other. And that's a real problem for our happiness and and health. Mm. Yeah. So everybody listening, I just invite you to make a effort to really spend time with the people that you love and yeah. and ask yourself, and, and you may think, well, I have to work or I have to do this or I have, but do you? Like, could yeah. you work an hour less? Could you, or work an hour more someday so you have a whole day off? Like what can we do? Because you don't get that time back. It's our most non-renewable resource. Um, and it's just, it's just so key. And 
Um, we've been talking about happiness a lot, and I think it's important that we sort of define happiness. I'd love to know how you define happiness in the study. Um, sure. And then talk about some of and the myths I, of happiness. Yeah. Will ahead. you help me remember? I can. I want to pose a challenge to your mm-hmm. listeners. Oh yes, before great. we stop. Yes. So, so I can either do that now, or I could do it. I could answer your question now and then do it. What What would you like? Let's do it now. Okay. So the challenge is. Because the question is, how do you do this? So we're talking about, you know, paying attention to your relationships, strengthening them. Is it a big deal? Do you have to, do you have to make a big plan? No. Right now, when you're done with this podcast, take out your phone, write an email, write a text, or call somebody. Think of somebody you miss, somebody who you haven't seen in a while and you'd like to say hi to, and just send them a note. Or call them just saying, I just want to say hi. That's all you have to do. It'll take you 15 seconds. You will be amazed at what comes back to you. Mm. Almost always, people people will write back saying, I'm so glad you reached out. And if you do that, if you did that now, and maybe you did it every day or even every week, but certainly if you do it every day, you will start keeping up with your friends and your family just by these little actions in a way that you weren't doing before. So that's my challenge. I love that. I'm going to do that. I know exactly who I'm going to reach out to. Thank you for and that. And maybe, I don't know, Christine, if, if people have a way to, to communicate with you in a, you know, but if they do, they could text you and, or, or, or post something yep. and tell you, tell you what happened. Instagram. Do it on Instagram. Tag me. Um, we'll put, are you on Instagram? Uh, I am. Okay. We'll put your handle in the show notes as well. So tag us both and tell us tell us your action step and tell us um, what the result was and how it made you feel too to do it. I think yeah. that's an important piece. Yes. I tell love us that what, challenge. How it made you feel. Yeah. Great. Great. Um, okay. So which one of us remembers what I asked? <laughs> oh, gosh. What did you say? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It came back to me. Okay. I got a serious case of mom brain. So we've been talking about happiness a lot. This You had did a study on it, but I'd love to know how you define happiness and what are some of the myths about happiness? Yes. Okay. The defining. So actually they do research on this and it, and it seems that happiness falls into two big buckets for us. One is called hedonic well-being. It comes from hedonism, and it means, am I having fun now? So like right now, I'm having fun having this conversation with you. I'm happy. But an hour from now, something upsetting might happen, and I won't be happy necessarily, right? So that kind of happiness goes up and down often all day long for all of us. Then there's another kind of happiness that's called eudaimonic well-being. It's from Aristotle. And basically what that refers to is the sense that my life is basically okay and has meaning and purpose. Mm. And I'll give you, I'll give you a good example of the of what's different about those two types of happiness. So let's say, let's just say you're a mom of a young child and you're reading to your child before she goes to bed. And you've read the book Goodnight Moon six times. And she says, Mommy, I want you to read it again, read it again. And you are exhausted. 
and you are about to fall asleep. Now, are you having fun? Is it, are you having hedonic well-being? No. But is this the most meaningful activity you could think of to do with your life right now? Read to your child, good night moon for the seventh time? Absolutely. So that's the difference between that kind of moment-to-moment happy time and the meaning and purpose kind of happiness. Mm. And, and what we find is that everybody wants some of both, but that some people really make one a priority more than the other. And that we're all different in that regard. Um, so then you asked me about some of the myths about happiness. Yes. Um, yeah. So one of them I, I just touched on, which is the myth that you can be happy all day long if you just do the right stuff. That is so not true, right? No human being on the planet is happy all day long. And I say that because sometimes... You know, if you look at other people's Instagram feeds, you can think everybody else has it all figured out. Everybody else is always at a great party or on a beautiful beach and not me, you know. And so what what it's important to name that nobody's happy all the time. No life is happy all the time. And it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you if you're not happy all the time. Um, and another another myth, I think that's worth talking about here is the idea that, well, to get this benefit about relationships, you've got to be a party animal. You've got to be an extrovert. That's absolutely not true. That many of us are shy. Many of us are introverts. That's not a problem. Um, And what we think is true is that People who are more on the shy side need fewer relationships. They need more alone time to refuel, Mm. whereas the extroverts need more time with people to refuel. But if you're uh, more on the shy side, you might just need one or two good, warm relationships in your life and not a lot of people. And that is completely normal, absolutely fine. And it gives you all the health benefit that you need. Mm. So a lot of this is just a very personal thing that each of us figures out for themselves. Mm. Mm. We can't model our happiness after anyone else's. We have to find what makes us happy and what really fills our cup. And I think that it's another thing that social media isn't so great about like, oh, do this and you'll be happy. Find this if you'll be happy. Find love. Exactly. Get this car. Move to this place. Do this, da, da, da. Yeah. And I think we all have to just pull back from that and say, you know, what really makes me happy? Sitting and reading exactly. a book with a cat in your lap may make you happy. Going exactly. to a concert with 10,000 other people may make you happy. You know, like it just is so, so individual. And I think it's just we have to find what makes us happy. Um I'm curious. I have it. Oh, oh, go ahead. Can I, can I offer one more quote yes. on, on the theme of just what you're saying? So Joseph Campbell, who wrote a book called The Power of Myth, has a quote that I love. He wrote, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. Mm-hmm. Meaning the idea is we're all finding our own way and that that's as it should be. And you don't have to take anybody else's path to try to find happiness. Mm, I love that. I love that. There's been many talks about the fear of success. Have you come across the fear of happiness at all? 
Yeah, I have actually. That's a wonderful question. I think the fear of happiness, the, what I've heard from some people is, I'm afraid to be happy because then I'm afraid it will be taken away. And it's almost like I'm afraid to feel good because it won't last. Well, that is actually true. Um, and But it's useful to know that you have that fear and then to see what happens if you let yourself experience some moments of happiness and then see that you can survive it when those moments pass. Because you do want to be able to enjoy the happy moments when they're here. But I totally get that feeling that, oh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid it'll be taken away. And, and I think what we have to learn is that we're strong enough to be okay when the happiness shifts to some other feeling. Because <laughs> mm, mm. yeah, like you said, happiness is not sustainable. It's not a sustainable state. We never want to go for trying to be happy all the time because there's such beautiful depth in the human experience and range in the human experience. And I think by having those moments where we're not happy and where we're going through you know, a challenging time or grief or whatever it is, it makes us appreciate the happy times even more. If we were happy all the time, there'd be no contrast. And so I think we take it for granted. That said, it's also important to make sure that we're doing something. You know, I make sure at least once a day I laugh, like, yeah. you know, just at least once a day. And oftentimes it's more, but there's some days where I'm just so in the zone of what I'm doing. I just get way too serious. It's like, okay, yeah. how can I break yeah. the state and just have a laugh and create that? Because we can't wait for someone else to come along to make us happy. That's for sure. Right. Um, I want to talk about loneliness a little bit. Yeah. I have a lot of empaths that listen to the show and a lot of um, introverts, extroverts as well, but a lot of introverts. And I'm curious to uh, know if there's any correlations between loneliness and happiness and what you think causes loneliness. Because there are plenty of people that spend a lot of time alone that don't feel lonely. But then there exactly. are other people who spend That's time alone really, and feel lonely. So what what creates the loneliness? So that was a really good question. That that distinction is important between uh, loneliness and being alone. Many people are quite content being alone. And sometimes all of us are content being alone. Loneliness is that experience of I'm not as connected to other people as I want to be. It's epidemic. One in three people in the world is lonely. So, and it's getting worse. Um, and there are so many causes of loneliness. So sometimes it's just being isolated, right? It's that, you know, your partner died or you live in a remote area and there's nobody around or there are just so many circumstances where you are isolated and don't want to be. But sometimes you're lonely in a crowd. Sometimes you're lonely in a marriage. Um, and the causes are many. It could be that you're you're not in a relationship that's good, that you're not in relationships where you can be yourself and where you can talk to the other person about what's important to you and what you're feeling, that that's really important to uh, to remedy if you are not in that situation. But some lonely people are lonely because they believe that other people don't want to be with them. And that's a hard one. Uh, in other words, 
they feel like, oh, people don't want to be with me, so I'm just going to stand over here in a corner and I'm not going to make friends and I'm going to give off the vibe of don't come near me. And so sometimes lonely people will, will be there at a party, for example, or at a meeting, and they'll actually give off the message without meaning to, to other people, stay away. I'm uncomfortable. Um, so there are a bunch of things people can do. Uh, one thing would be to find a way to do something you love alongside other people. Because if you're doing something you care about, could be a hobby, could be a political cause, could be volunteering at a soup kitchen, any number of things. And if you're doing that alongside other people who care about the same activity, that's a natural place to start conversations. And the other thing would be to find a way to volunteer to be of service to people. So maybe you could volunteer to teach English as a second language and to be useful, use your talents to help people who need those talents. Um, you know, in communities of older adults, in retirement communities, they've organized programs where older adults read to preschoolers and everybody loves it. The, the older folks love reading to the little kids and the little kids love being read to and, and everybody's really happy. So there are a number of ways that loneliness can be worked with and, and uh, eased by how we conduct ourselves. Mm. Mm. Can you talk about empathetic accuracy and why it's important? Well, that empathic accuracy is really knowing what somebody else is feeling. And if you think about it, we, from the time we're tiny, spend a lot of time figuring out what somebody else is feeling because it's so important that we do. Like pretty quickly when we're little, we figure out whether mom or dad is angry, right? And we figure out if another kid is angry or if somebody's happy to see us or if somebody is sad. And some people are better at that than others. But what we know is that paying attention to how other people feel is a very important part of a good close relationship. So really tuning into somebody else's feelings or at least asking about what they're feeling is so useful. So if your friend looks upset, just to say that, you look upset, tell me what's going on. Or you seem angry, what's happening? Um, just to ask about it because people will usually be grateful that you cared enough to notice and that you asked. Mm, I love that. We have a lot of people that come on and talk about romantic relationships on the show and resolving conflict and um, why our partners trigger us so much. What I uh, love from your perspective, especially because you've studied, well, you've been involved in a study that's studied happiness for 80 something years. You yourself haven't studied it for 80 something years, but you've been yeah. definitely there. Um, how much one's romantic relationships influences their happiness markers and how we can nourish our romantic relationships? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, you don't need a romantic relationship to get this benefit I'm talking about. You can find good relationships anywhere, right? Friends, other family members work. Okay. So 
I, I say that because there are many people who are single and many who are single by choice. And that's not a problem in this regard. Right. So just want to name that. But then in terms of nurturing our relationships, one useful thing is to go back to what you asked about, Christine, which is empathic accuracy. So what they find when they do research on this is that we are best at guessing what our partner is feeling when we first get together. Because if you think about it, when we first get together, we're so interested in the question of, is my partner into me? And what are they feeling? So we get really good at tuning into what they're feeling. And then what they find is that with couples who've been together a long time, five, 10, 20 years, they get less good at knowing what the other one is feeling. You would think they'd get better because they know each other so well, but it turns out we stop paying attention. Mm. Oh, I know, you know, I know what my partner is feeling. So one of the things we can do to strengthen our romantic relationships is really just to bring fresh eyes to a routine encounter like dinner. You know, I've had dinner with my life, my wife almost every night for 37 years, oh, right? Oh, I love that. So, yeah, and it's and it and I feel really lucky because I'm married to a wonderful person. But, you know, there are times when we get kind of bored and there are times, you know, and I have to and and she does too. Like we have to kind of bring fresh eyes and say, "Oh, okay, like what's what's happening with her now?" You know? And what, what, you know, actually one of my meditation teachers gave me a really good challenge that I find really useful here. He said to ask yourself the question, what's here right now that I've never noticed before? And if you bring that question to the, you know, 1000th dinner you've had with your romantic partner, just look at it and say, okay, what's completely different than I've ever noticed, right? Or what have I never picked up on? The, and then talk to your partner about it. Um, people love to feel seen. They love to feel like you're paying attention. And so bringing fresh eyes to an old relationship is a great way to liven it up. I love that. And it's such a good point. I think we get lazier as we go and we're so invested in the beginning and it's an area in our life that we can, we can take for granted, especially with work and kids and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I know I've, I've looked at some happiness studies and one of the things that I've seen is that, you know, having not just being married, but having a, a long-term partner where you feel really seen and really loved is a key to longevity and, and happiness. So nourishing those relationships. Sounds yes. sounds really important. Yeah. Um, yes. As we wrap up here, there's something else I wanted to ask you that you teach called the wiser model of reacting to challenging situations. Can you take us through that? Sure. So that's really just a model of dealing with something unexpected, confusing, weird that happens, especially something that somebody else does and you don't know why they did it. Um, it's, it was developed by a psychologist for kids, but it turns out it works really well, well for adults. And it's really just a way to slow things down. So one of the things we notice, I notice in myself is that when somebody does something that upsets me or offends me, 
I start filling in the blank. I start saying, oh, they did this because of this or for that reason. I fill in the blanks. And the wiser model asks us to slow things down, not to fill in the blanks, but to look at what's happening. So let's say that my friend sends me an email saying, I need to talk to you right away, exclamation point, right? And my friend never does that. Okay, so that's, uh, that's, um, that could mean a whole lot of things. It could mean something wonderful, right? Or it could mean I'm really angry at you. Um, it could mean you've done something I'm furious about. It could mean uh, the sky is falling. It could mean anything, right? It's easy to find yourself jumping to conclusions. Oh, he's, he's doing this. He's saying this because X, Y, or Z. So the wiser model says, slow it down. So first watch. Okay, here's this email from my friend. It's, you know, a Thursday night at 7 p.m. Why might he be sending me an email now? So think of all the possibilities. Interpret, well, okay, what are some of the possibilities for why he might be sending me this email? It might be that he's angry with me about something, but boy, it might be about so many other things. It might be that he got a new job. It might be that he found a new romance. It might be uh, that he bought a puppy, who knows? So instead of my worry that I did something to anger him, I, I lay out a whole bunch of possibilities. Then figure out, okay, what are the ways I could respond? So I could say, well, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let this email sit for a while, uh, or I'm gonna answer them right away. Uh, and then, so I choose which response I wanna use, and then I, I respond. So in my case, let's say I email my friend right back right away. Um, my first temptation was to say, did I do something wrong? But I'm not gonna say that. I'm going to say, oh, what's happening? When would you like to talk? And then we and then we talk. And then I reflect back and say, well, how did that work to not to assume I knew why my friend was wanting to be in touch so quickly, but to lay out the possibilities and then see what happened. So that's just a small example of slowing it down when you find yourself uh, essentially jumping to conclusions about why somebody has done something or some, why you get an angry email even. Uh, just slow it down. Mm. Think about all the possibilities and then let yourself take a little time when you can to choose how you want to respond and then see what happens and learn from it. Mm. That's the wiser model. Learning from it. That's that's so key. <laughs> Learning from yeah. our experiences, our quote unquote mistakes, all of it, so we don't have to repeat them. And and if we learn and really take in the lessons, and we also don't have to beat ourselves up too. That's one of the ways I let myself off the hook. It's like, okay, that wasn't the greatest way. Like I just had an experience recently where I was dealing with some issues with my daughter's room and people came over to fix it and they messed something up and the guy was a real jerk and I was not a nice person back to him. Yeah. And I just didn't, I didn't like that. It didn't sit well with me. So I just like, okay, I can beat myself up. I can feel awful about it. Or the next time I have to interact with this person, I just own the behavior and communicate in a more pleasant way. And that's not necessarily being a people pleaser. It's just taking responsibility for our actions because 
if we go into beating ourselves up too much, that's going to influence our happiness as well, because then we're just going to be in more of a self-loathing state and a self-judgment state. So I love that step-by-step model. Thank you for taking us through that. I love the actionable things. And I'm sure there's there's a lot of great takeaways in the new book that you've co-authored called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. I'm sure we've talked about some of the things in the episode, but what else can people get from this book? Um. Well, they can get um, some ideas for how to help other people with relationships, um, how to help, how to help heal some of the relationships where you're having trouble. So all of us have somebody in our family who we find difficult, right? Or we have some difficult family situation. And so what we do is we try to offer you ideas for how to work on those, particularly relationships that you don't want to have to walk away from, but you'd like to see if they can be made better. And so we try to offer you some some suggestions for how you could do that. Mm, I love that. And where can people get the book? Amazon and all the places? Oh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books. Uh, it's also an audio book. We're really excited. Mark, my co-author Mark Schultz and I read the book uh, ourselves, so you'll get to hear us on the audiobook. So we'd love to have people see the book. Mm. Awesome. Great. And where can people find you on Instagram and website and all the places? Yeah, so they so I am on Instagram, although I don't do as much as I wish I did. And uh, Instagram, and I'm also on an app called Insight Timer, if any of your folks use yeah. the meditation app. You know, I'm a Zen teacher. Oh, amazing. And um, and so uh, if you look for Robert Waldinger on Insight Timer, I have a, a bunch of Dharma talks on that site that you can listen to if you want to. Oh, I'm going to check it out. I love Insight Timer. That's such a great app. This is great. Well, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for being here today. I'm looking forward to the book. Looking forward to checking out some of the things on on Insight Timer. And you already gave us one challenge of reaching out to someone and connecting. But what's one thing you can leave us with that will just maybe create a greater feeling of happiness for us in this Mm. moment? Okay. Think of somebody you actually are grateful to because they've done a lot for you. Uh, think of, and if you can't think of someone you're actually feeling grateful to think of what your life would be like without somebody who's pretty central to your life. Think of all the ways your life would be different and then just reach out to them and say, Ooh, I'm just really appreciating how important you are to me. Do that. Mm, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Bob. It was great to have you here today. This was a pleasure, Christine. Thank you. It's such a delightful conversation. 